It's poverty. It's crime. Unemployment. Corruption. Accountability. The energy crisis. Inflation. We are worried. That South Africa has myriad problems on all fronts is a given. But the time has come for us to look for real solutions. I'm Jeremy Maggs, and this MoneyWeb podcast will discuss those solutions on how South Africans can solve problems by having tough conversations and drawing on the insights of South Africa's top business leaders. Welcome to Fix SA. Welcome to another episode of Fix SA right here on MoneyWeb. Now, I think there would be broad agreement that for a society to fix itself, it needs a moral compass, it needs a stronger backbone, it needs adherence to the broad rules and prescripts of society. Get that right and you can start the fix. Dion Rousseau is Chief Executive Officer of the Ethics Institute of South Africa, and this is what he said previously. We have become, to an alarming extent, used to social and ethical erosion in South Africa. Our lives have also been adapted accordingly. He says that this is a trend that should be arrested and turned around. And that is a good place to start this conversation. Dion, a very warm welcome to you. Let me wade straight in and ask you, against that backdrop, do you think we're facing an ethics crisis in South Africa? Hi, Jeremy. Yes, no, definitely. Um, If we think what is happening in our society... It is clearly a society that is not safe, that is not just in many instances, and also a society that is not not very prosperous at the moment. And I believe uh, that ethics is, is the cornerstone of any safe, just and prosperous society. Because for a society to prosper, you need people to get along with one another. And that really is what ethics is, is all about. Ethics is about uh, how you treat other people in a manner that does not only serve your interests, but that also respect their interests and their dignity. And as I think at the moment, we are uh, losing out on a lot of that. And that is why we see a lot of wrongdoing in society. Uh, if we look at the levels of corruption, we look at, at social stress in our society, if we look at inequality, all of these things are contributing to people not getting along with one another. And we need to, to fix this in some other way in order to get us on a path to that safe, just and prosperous society. Well, let's talk about the fix in just a moment. And I'll ask you the question about how ethical leadership can be cultivated. But I would also suggest to you, Dion, that it's also about complacency. And you've raised this issue yourself. A while back, you said instead of accepting the current social and ethical erosion as normal, we should become involved in rejecting the current situation or simply the way that things are being done in South Africa. You go on to say we should denounce it as unacceptable. The reality is that we've become inured to it, haven't we? That uh, we just accept the status quo. We're not shouting loud enough. Or are we? No, uh, Jeremy, we are indeed uh, reaching a point which I regard as quite dangerous. And that is why I wrote that article that you just quoted from. We are, in fact, becoming used to it. In other words, if we look at culture, we always say that the easy definition for culture is the way we do things around here. And I think there are clear indications that we have become accepting of unethical practices and start to regard them as normal. We were involved, if I say we, the Ethics Institute, joined the Institute for Business Ethics in London uh, about two years ago in an international survey. 
And there was a very interesting finding there that relates to specifically the question that you are asking. And the focus now is on business ethics. In other words, ethics within the context of corporations. And um, interestingly enough, South Africa was the only developing country participating in that survey. All the other countries were developing countries like the US, Canada, the UK, Germany, France, and, and the like. And interestingly enough, when it came to managing ethics in organizations, South Africa came out top on most of the measures in mm. terms of having training programs, having codes, having whistleblowing systems, and other stuff related to ethics management. But when the question was asked about culture, we ended up right last. When the question was asked about the tolerance of people uh, for unethical practices, South Africans tended to indicate that it is inevitable that in any big organization there will be ethical failures. So we have come to a point where we accept that. And, and despite all the good work that is being done in order to equip people to manage ethics in the public and the private sector, it seems that, that we are becoming used to the hot water. What do you mean by an ethical culture within an organization? Uh, an ethical culture is where people, the simple version, let me first start there, is where people do the right thing even when nobody is watching. That cliche that I think you are quite familiar mm. with. But the ethical culture is where doing the right thing has become the norm. It has become a habit and you don't need to watch over people to do it they almost instinctively would do the right thing. So it's about certain norms, uh, about how we treat each other as colleagues, how we treat our staff upwards, downwards in the hierarchy, how we treat customers, suppliers, uh, but also the communities in which we operate. An ethical culture is when norms about uh, honesty, fairness, and respect around how we treat others has become the norm in an organization. Do you think, though, that there are too many bad apples now, that we've gone too far down the line, that it's simply too easy these days to be unethical because everybody else is getting away with it and therefore we'll just go along with the status quo? <laughs> Interesting question. Um, I believe we don't only have good apples and bad apples. In fact, the vast majority, the 80 to 90% of apples I always call decent but dubious, in other words, they are not people who are bad apples in the sense of they have evil intent, they have criminal minds. But exactly what we've just discussed, it has become acceptable in organizations for people to do the wrong things and get away with it, and then it is normalized. And then those decent but dubious apples start participating in, in those more dubious, unethical practices. So... It's really a case of focusing on, on that, what we can call that silent majority, and turning their gaze in, in the direction not of the bad apples, but of the good apples that, that we have in the organization. And I think we are never at a point beyond redemption. I think there's always the possibility to turn things around. And there are just so many historical examples of not only individuals, but also organizations that have been turned around has been quite corrupt at a certain point and then over time were able to become 
quite respectable organizations again. So I believe it's, it's not too late, but we need to become much more aware that we are moving in a direction where people are becoming ever more accepting of unethical practices as normal. And then in order to reverse the trend, Dion, do we need a more punitive approach or a more positive and proactive approach to it? Jeremy, that is probably the the question that I have to answer most. Uh, (laughs) Because many people work with the assumption, and, and that is why we hear the word consequence management so often, that the only way in order to resolve this is, as you have just said, through a punitive approach. And, and there's lot, lots to be said for a punitive approach. Uh, I would really like to see our police to be more effective and our national prosecuting agency and that uh, people who do wrong are being dealt with in no uncertain terms. However, and, and, and this is a very important insight uh, when it comes to, to ethics, especially in the context of organizations, is that you now get people who do the right thing out of fear. In other words, they do the right thing because someone, somebody is watching them. The question is, what happens when that somebody who is watching disappears? I think you would agree with me. It's a, it's a bit like people speeding on the road. They see a traffic officer, they slow down. But when nobody is watching, they go back to speeding. Mm. And one of the things that we found in our recent research is that a, a strong fear-based compliance approach works initially. In the long run, it becomes counterproductive in the sense that people become less ethically responsible because you totally rely on someone external, in other words, extrinsic motivation, to get people to do the right thing. And that is why, although there definitely is a place for punitive action, I think uh, it is much more important that we also move on to get people to buy into in other words, to be intrinsically motivated to do the right thing. And you can only become intrinsically motivated from a very early age, surely. So this has got to almost start at the foundation phase. And given all the socioeconomic discrepancies and difficulties that exist in South Africa and the fragmentation of society, that's difficult to start teaching at that early age, is it not? It's actually quite easy to teach it. The question is how effective is it to teach it? Point taken. I often uh, are involved in conversations where people say, but what we really need is to teach children from a young age. The problem is if you teach ethics within a context that is highly flawed, highly unethical, you're probably going to only make young people cynical about ethics. And that is also why... At the Ethics Institute, we follow quite a different approach when it comes to schools specifically and how ethics should be approached in schools. And we don't think that including ethics or civil responsibility or whatever you want to call it into the curriculum, it is much better to run your school as a moral community. In other words, to make sure that you have clear ethical standards and that you lift the ethics so that people can see how it should be done. And when you see the right behaviors, you reinforce those right behaviors. But obviously, you should never turn a blind eye to unethical and disrespectful and and unfair practices. Mm. So so that is why I I think uh, it is important to start young. 
But but then, Jeremy, I think we should also just remind one another that moral development is a lifelong process. Your ethical development isn't finished by the time that you are an adult. It goes on right through your life. And, and I think very often we see, especially when grandchildren are born, that even people who are in the second or final part of their life, their values change quite dramatically. So it is a never-ending process. It's also much more difficult to be ethical, isn't it? And it can often be very unpopular, is that you would find yourself uh, in the minority. And human nature is predicated on pack behavior, isn't it? True. It can also be very easy to be ethical if, if the environment is different. But, but you are right. If the environment is very toxic, if unethical behavior is rife and you speak out like we often see with whistleblowers, then it can not only be inconvenient, but it can even be dangerous sure, to, to yeah. the point of losing your life. And, and that is why culture is so important, that you build a culture where it is easy to talk about ethical things. And from the work that we do, it's always a very good indication of the ethical maturity of an organization to see the ease with which people talk about ethics in the organization. If people frown on people who use the E-word, then obviously you live in a, in a kind of culture where people believe that business and ethics or politics and ethics simply don't mingle. And that is a clear red signal. So from a business perspective then, how can ethical leadership be developed, grown and cultivated within an organization? Where is the starting point? And I'm just wondering as we have this conversation, Dion Rousseau, whether we even need something in an organization like a chief ethics officer. Well, if, if I can start with the last one, we already have a lot of chief ethics officers in organizations in South Africa. If you go to our, our big and well-known companies, just about all of them nowadays do have an ethics officer and very often uh, also an ethics officer. In other words, a group of people. And one of them might have the title of chief ethics officer. Do they have a seat um, at the table? Do they, are, do they have a voice that is heard, though? Yeah. And the fortunate thing here was the introduction of social and ethics committees. Because any large company, even medium-sized companies and listed companies and state-owned companies, they now are required by law to have a social and, and ethics committee. Now, ironically, <laughs> it is called the social and ethics committee, but the word ethics only appears in the name of the committee and not once in the mandate of a social and ethics committee. And King Four tried to correct this when he talks about the different committees of the governing body. It says the very first thing that a social and ethics committee should monitor and report on is organizational ethics. And, and I've been chairing the Social and Ethics Committee Forum of the Institute of Directors for the last three years. And we run annual Social and Ethics Committee trend survey. And we found there just last year, again, in the 2023 survey, that the topic to which social and ethics committees devote most of their time is organizational ethics. And that despite the fact that it's not included in the statutory or legal mandate. So it seems that, that it has taken on and that we see a lot more conversations uh, on ethics that ultimately 
through the reporting of the committee to the board, it also becomes a topic uh, at board level. So those conversations then that need to happen around ethics within an organization, what should inform that? It should always start with the example of, of the leaders. We often say, bit tongue in the cheek, that CEO does not only stand for chief executive officer, but also chief ethics officer of the organization. Mm. If you don't have leadership commitment, you get absolutely nowhere. But then I often come across people who have really strong ethical commitment at a very high senior executive level in the organization, but they don't understand how to take the organization along. And that is where ethics, like anything else in an organization, simply can't manage itself. It needs people to very concertedly and deliberately attend to the ethics of the organization. And the very first thing that you need to do is to make clear what is acceptable. In other words, what are your positive expectations of people when it comes to ethics, like respecting the dignity of other people, treating people fairly, keeping your promises. In other words, making very clear what is acceptable, but making equally clear what is not acceptable. And that, as you would know, often happens through codes of ethics or code of conduct or or policies on gifts or conflicts of interest or whatever. But then we need to understand that these are mere words on paper initially and that people now need to be informed. They need to become familiar with, uh, with the ethical standards, what is acceptable, what is not acceptable. They should see the very practical commitment by senior leaders uh, and leaders across all levels of organization to those standards. And then they need to be motivated to abide by these standards. And now we are back at that very important word that both you and I used a bit earlier in our conversation Mm -hmm. of extrinsic and intrinsic motivation. And very often organizations opt for extrinsic motivation to get people to adhere to their ethical standards. All of us are very familiar with zero tolerance. And the moment that you hear the word zero tolerance, you can hear uh, that this is extrinsic motivation. We tell you now that we won't tolerate that. So extrinsic motivation. And although there definitely is a place for extrinsic motivation, both in education as well as in life in general, It is not long-lasting, and what you ultimately want is for people to become intrinsically motivated. But you don't threaten people into being intrinsically motivated. You have to persuade them. You have to talk about uh, why ethics matters in the organization, how it affects all people in the organization, how it affects yourself, but also how ethics is related to the sustainability of any organization. So, Dion Rousseau, we've been talking about this in many respects at a micro level. We've talked about how this works in business in South Africa. So now let's step it up a gear if we can. If we take the philosophy that you've been espousing and we say, well, we have a bigger problem with ethics in South Africa, how do you then take the lessons that you've just imparted and inject them into broader society which will then hopefully engender some sort of fix? Yeah, very important question. Leaders can only be effective on a societal level if they are trusted. And um, there was a a recent study, the Edelman 
trust barometer mm. that found that of all the countries participating in that survey, South Africa had the second lowest score of all countries when it comes to trust in government leaders. It's interesting to see that trust in business leaders are, are substantially, materially higher than trust in, in government and government leaders. Now, how do you get people to trust your leaders so that they can be effective? Because if they aren't trusted, they are not taken seriously. And I think there are three very important things. The first one is the integrity of your leaders. In other words, they need to have a reputation for being ethical. You need to be able to rely that they will keep their word, they will keep their promises, they will do what they say. That's the first very important ingredient mm. to focus on the integrity of leaders. The second one is to focus on their competence. People don't trust incompetent people. Simple as that. Because incompetent people can't help you. And we trust other people because we rely on them to help us. And, and therefore, uh, competence can never be isolated from ethics or integrity. You need people who are both ethical and who are also competent. And then I think a third thing that is very important is loyalty. And I, I know loyalty can have negative connotations if it means blind, uncritical loyalty. But that's not the loyalty that I speak about. By loyalty, I mean that you are loyal to whatever organization, whether it's the government, whether it's a business, whether it's a school, that you are loyal to that institution that you are leading. And if you look at corruption, corruption always starts with a conflict of interests, where people put their own interests first and they become disloyal to the organization that they serve. So therefore, I would say, Jeremy, that what we really need is what I would call a very wholesome threesome, where integrity, competence, and loyalty to whatever organization you serve and the best interest of that organization, where that becomes the primary focus. So let's assume then, as we come to the end of this conversation, that uh, we have got to an extent that wholesome threesome right. It's going to take time, and you've given mm. us the building blocks in order uh, to get there. How then do you measure an improvement in ethical progress? When people aren't treated uh, ethically, in other words, when they are treated in an unfair, unethical, unjust manner, they, they complain and they disassociate uh, and they become disloyal. In other words, there's a lot of, of uh, social unrest, uh, a, a lot of social unhappiness. Um, the opposite happens when you're on the right track, that people start to collaborate, you see less of these grievances, and if you, if you just take uh, social unrest in our country, specifically related to service delivery at the moment, you can see that, and especially in, in an election year, we see more and more of that. But even prior to election year, we've seen a growing dissatisfaction. And it really is about looking at the levels of satisfaction. There's interesting uh, global trend to look at the gross happiness of countries. And there's always mm. a, a very intimate link between ethics and happiness.
So finally then, uh, Dion Rousseau, and a fascinating conversation, you play in this pond all the time, in this space. Are you optimistic that we can become a more ethical society? And if you are, do you believe that we can then fix things? I'm absolutely optimistic. And, and I think one of the mistakes that we make is that when we look at, at people, we only look at their dark side. And all of us have a dark side. Let's not beat around the bush. Mm. We all have the tendency to put our own interests first, to be selfish. And unfortunately, especially in economics, we have put this side of us uh, totally in front because rational economic man is not interested in anyone else. Rational economic man, and you can hear not even women, are dead bent on just maximizing their own self-interest. And it's not to be denied that we all are self-interested, but that's not the only part that we have. We also have a pro-social part. We are deeply affected by the suffering of other people. We rejoice in the joy of others, and we feel sad about the misery of other people when we are directly confronted with that. And I think one of the mistakes that we make is that we overemphasize the dark side and underemphasize or totally neglect our ability to have sympathy and empathy with other people, and that we have our best times and the most happiest times when we are in good, healthy, wholesome relations with other people. And there is a lot of food for thought. Dion Rousseau, Chief Executive Officer of the Ethics Institute of South Africa, thank you very much for joining us today right here on MoneyWeb. Thanks for listening to this Fix SA podcast. For more episodes posted every second Friday, go to moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.